Good evening. The Taliban gives its first press conference as the U.S. continues its mass evacuation of Afghanistan. And we talked to a retired a retired uh, colonel who worked very closely with the White House in the early days of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. We talk about the Taliban's attitude towards narcotics and the water crisis that is developing in the southwest as the governor's brother speaks out on CNN with these and other stories. I'm Paul DiRienzo with some of the news for Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. In Afghanistan, the Taliban vowed today to respect women's rights, forgive those who fought them and ensure Afghanistan doesn't become a haven for terrorists as part of a publicity blitz aimed at reassuring world powers and a fearful population. The Taliban spokesperson Zabahullah Majid emerged today for his first ever public appearance to address those concerns at a news conference. We don't want to repeat any conflict, any war again. We want to do away with the factors for conflict. The Islamic Emirate does not have any kind of hostility or animosity with anybody. Animosities have come to an end. We would like to live peacefully. We don't want any internal enemies and any external enemies. Undoubtedly, we are at a very historical stage. Our countrymen and women who have been waiting, uh, I would like to very soon, we will be witnessing the formation of a strong Islamic and inclusive government, inshallah, God willing. We have not had any casualties. Uh, there have been some rioters who wanted to take advantage, wanted to abuse the situation. We would like to assure the residents of Kabul for full security, for uh, protection of their dignity and security and safety. And that's Zabahullah Mujahid, a Taliban spokesperson. Meanwhile, Taliban fighters were re-entering cities throughout Afghanistan and saw a country unlike the one they had been forced from by the United States military nearly 20 years ago. The paved streets of Kabul were lined with towering apartment blocks, glass office buildings and shopping malls. The plush furniture inside the interior ministry was, according to a 22-year-old fighter from the country's mountainous east, like something I thought of in a dream. The scene was decidedly more chaotic at the city's airport, where thousands have been trying desperately to find a way out of the country. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says the U.S. military is on, is in touch with the Taliban to keep the peace as the withdrawal of U.S. personnel continues until the end of this month. Our commanders at the airport are in communication with Taliban commanders on the ground outside the airport. There have been discussions, there is communication between them and us, and I would just let the results speak for themselves. I'm not going to get into the details of how those discussions are progressing because they there are interactions multiple times a day. The general said, I think, very well, there's been no hostile interactions from the Taliban to our operations at the airport. The mission it runs through August 31st. The commander-in-chief made it very clear that time is of the essence and we all share a sense of urgency. And that's the Pentagon spokesperson earlier today. U.S. Army Major General Hank Taylor described the massive airlift that's designed to evacuate thousands. Throughout the night, nine C-17s arrived delivering equipment and approximately 1,000 troops. 
Additionally, seven C-17s departed. These flights lifted approximately 700 to 800 passengers, and we can confirm 165 of these passengers are American citizens. Our initial focus was to insert forces and equipment. The speed of evacuation will pick up. We predict that our best effort could look like 5,000 to 9,000 passengers departing per day. But we are mindful that circumstances could change. We will keep you updated. U.S. Army Major General Hank Taylor, in an address to the nation yesterday, President Joe Biden admitted the collapse of the Afghan government had happened quicker than expected, but it didn't change his decision for a complete pullout of U.S. forces after a 20-year conflict, primarily with the Taliban. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency, but I always promise the American people that I will be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. Biden then sketched out the cost of the intervention and the failure of its expected beneficiaries, the Afghan government. We spent over a trillion dollars. We trained and equipped an Afghan military force with some 300,000 strong, incredibly well equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their air force, something the Taliban doesn't have. Taliban does not have an air force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. Afghanistan's U.S.-backed President Ashraf Ghani fled the country on Sunday, on Saturday, as the rebel group advanced rapidly on Kabul, Afghanistan's capital. Biden said if the Afghan government was unable or unwilling to fight, the conflict wasn't worth any more American investment. Unable to negotiate for the future of their country when the chips were down, they would never have done so while U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan, bearing the brunt of the fighting for them. And our true strategic competitors, China and Russia, would love nothing more than the United States to continue to funnel billions of dollars in resources and attention into stabilizing Afghanistan indefinitely. President Joe Biden, the Taliban based in the conservative rural areas of Afghanistan are feared for their tyrannical rule. 
They opposed on the country before being toppled by the U.S. military in 2002. Their strict brand of Islam barred women from jobs and schools, but the Taliban spokesperson says the group has turned over a new leaf. Women will have rights as long as the basic rules of Islam are followed. We are going to allow women to work and study. We have got frameworks, of course. The women are going to be very active in the society, but within the frameworks of Islam. Whether it is in work or other activities, because women are a key part of society. And uh, we are guaranteeing all their rights within the limits of Islam. Reportedly, the Taliban have encouraged women to return to work and have allowed girls to return to school, handing out Islamic headscarves at the door. A female news anchor interviewed a Taliban official yesterday in a TV studio. The role of women in Islamic countries uh, varies widely. Some countries like neighboring Pakistan have had female prime ministers, while ultra-conservative Saudi Arabia only recently allowed women to drive. A group of women wearing Islamic headscarves demonstrated briefly in Kabul, holding signs demanding the Taliban not eliminate women from public life. And a Republican Party insider for the Bush administration, retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, was at Secretary of State Colin Powell's side when he made the false claims of weapons of mass destruction that prompted the invasion of Iraq. Wilkerson says he knew there were no weapons of mass destruction and had a falling out with Powell because of it. He says the only purpose of the war on terror was to boost the interests of the war machine. Raytheon, Lockheed, Boeing, you name it, military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it. We made money for them. They made fortunes out of the war. There was never any expectation, I don't think, on anyone who had a brain or an imagination's part that we were going to build a state there. Um, what worries me more than all of that is that we shouldn't have been there to build a state. If we were going to be there and we are going to stay there, as we did in Germany, as we did in Japan, and then Korea after the Korean War, we should have looked at the strategic reasons to stay there. One, we're right astride China's most uh, powerful Belt Road initiative through Central Asia. Two, we're cheek and jowl with the most potentially dangerous nuclear stockpile in the world, that of Pakistan's. And three, we're right next door to Xinjiang province where about 12 million Uyghurs live, whom if we got into a hot war with China, we'd need to try and use to destabilize China. I mean, were we there for 9-11? We're coming up to the 20th anniversary. I mean, what did, did 9-11 have anything to do with this? If we'd been there for 9-11 exclusively, I think we'd have had a lot better outcome. Those of us in the government at the time, including myself, said that. Eliminate al-Qaeda to the extent possible, chase them to the four corners of the earth if necessary, and kill them in their caves maybe teach the Taliban a little bit of a lesson such that you say at the end of that lesson, which would last less than six months, do it again and we'll come back and then leave. Don't linger in the graveyard of empires. This is crazy. This is nonsense. But as I said, there are so many forces in this country now that love this sort of situation and make money off of it that it's hard to defeat them. In November of 2015, sitting in the Roosevelt Room in front of President Obama, and his secretary of state at the time, John Kerry, the president said to me, and I quote, there's a bias in this town toward war, unquote. I almost fell off my chair. I wanted to say, Mr. President, you think? You think? 
the voting public. It's so confusing for them. And Trump fed right into it. He, he would say, I'm going to pull the troops out. I wish he'd meant it. Does anybody tell the truth to the American people anymore, and how should they deal with that? I can testify to the fact my administration didn't tell the American people the truth. I mean, my God, we went to the United Nations, me and Colin Powell, and we lied to the American people and told them that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. I'm not insinuating that we knew we were fabricating it right there on the spot, but there were lots of signs that the intelligence was not good. And immediately after we'd done that, and George Tenet, the director of Central Intelligence at the time, began to tell my boss, Colin Powell, that he was wrong on the three major pillars of his presentation, chemical, biological weapons, nuclear program, and contacts with al-Qaeda, I began to realize quickly that we'd been lied to by the premier intelligence institution in America. So how do you get around that? Where does this go? And I guess I'm thinking in the same region, Iran. The situation that really concerns me, worries me deeply, is with China. We have changed our entire strategic approach to China now. It is an inimical, an adversary approach. With the South China Sea and with Taiwan as possible explosive points in that relationship, So I've done this war game repeatedly when I was in uniform. And whenever you run the game with China over Taiwan or the South China Sea or probably both, it winds up being nuclear. That's not a scenario I want to play out. What should the public do? We should be demanding that the Congress, a bunch of pusillanimous, basically uninterested, ignorant, well-paid by the complex people, and I'm talking about both parties, Democrat and Republican, do their job rest the war power back from the executive. It says in the Constitution that the Congress has the war power. We have surrendered the war power to the President of the United States. The American people are to blame for this, in my view. I'm part of it. We're yeah. all to blame for it. We've let presidents do this to us. we got to wake up and we got to take our government back. And that is retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He was at Secretary of State Colin Powell's side. When the secretary made the false claims of weapons of mass destruction that prompted the invasion of Iraq, the complex he referred to is the military-industrial complex, a term famously coined by then-President Dwight David Eisenhower. And Afghanistan is a source of opium, the raw material used to make heroin and other narcotics. The United States has spent over $8 billion in 15 years on efforts to deprive the Taliban of profits from Afghanistan's opium and heroin trade, from poppy eradication to air attacks and raids on suspected labs. But Afghanistan remains the world's biggest illicit opiate supplier. The war has left impoverished Afghan farmers deeply dependent on the fields of colorful opium poppies that dot the countryside. But before the U.S. invasion, the Taliban had a different take on the drug, banning poppy growing in the year 2000 as they sought international legitimacy, an unpopular move with Afghanistan's people who depended on the trade. The Taliban spokesperson said today there would no longer be room in the country for opium production. Afghanistan will not produce any kind of narcotics. In 2001, if you remember, we had brought narcotics production to zero in 2001, but our country was unfortunately occupied and, uh, and then the way was paved for reproduction of narcotics, even at the level of the government, everybody was involved. But from now on, nobody is going to get involved. Nobody can be involved in drug smuggling. Uh, today, when we entered Kabul, 
we saw a large number of our youth who were sitting under the bridges and next to the walls and they were using narcotics. This was so unfortunate. I got saddened to see these young people without any faith in the future. From now on, Afghanistan will be narcotics, a narcotics-free country. But it needs international assistance, the international community should help us uh, so that we can have alternative crops. If we can provide the people with alternative crops, then of course very soon we can bring it to an end. Unfortunately, alternative crops have never made as much money for the farmers as growing opium with its tremendous demand here in the Western world. Three of the last four years have seen some of Afghanistan's highest levels of opium production, according to the UN Office of Drug Control, reporting even as the COVID-19 pandemic raged, poppy cultivation soared 37% last year. Barnett Rubin, a former U.S. Department of State advisor on Afghanistan, says illicit narcotics are the country's largest industry except for war. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In Haiti, government officials raised a death toll from Saturday's earthquake to 1,941. The increase in reported deaths comes after Tropical Storm Grace forced a temporary halt to search and rescue efforts to delay fed anger, growing anger and frustration among thousands who are left homeless. The devastation is centered on the country's southwestern area where health care has reached capacity and people have lost homes and loved ones. Bodies continue to be pulled from the rubble and the smell of death hung heavily over a pancake three-story apartment building. In a statement, the U.S. military Southern Command says it's moving eight helicopters from Honduras to Haiti and that seven U.S. Coast Guard cutters were en route to support the USAID team. And U.S. officials on Monday, as yesterday, declared the first ever water, short, uh, water shortage from a river that serves 40 million people in the West, triggering cuts to some Arizona farmers next year amid a gripping drought. Water levels at the largest reservoir on the Colorado River, Lake Mead, have fallen to record lows. The region is facing an acute water crisis with a growing population and a drought being made worse by hotter, drier weather. A spokesperson for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation is Tanya Trujillo. She says the drought is directly linked to climate change. We are seeing the effects of climate change in the Colorado River Basin through extended drought, extreme temperatures, expansive wildfires, and in some places, flooding and landslides. And now is the time to take action to respond to them. The basin is experiencing its 22nd year of drought, and earlier this summer, the reservoirs hit their lowest levels since they were originally filled. The 24-month study projects Lake Mead's January 1, 2022 elevation to be 1,065.85 feet. And as a result, during calendar year 2022, Lake Mead will operate in the tier one shortage condition. This is the first time since the interim operating guidelines were adopted that that trigger has been met. A tier one shortage condition will trigger additional reductions and water saving contributions for Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico. 
Tanya Trujillo is a spokesperson for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. Water stored in Lake Mead and Lake Powell is divvied up through legal agreements among the seven Colorado River Basin states, the federal government, Mexico, and others. The agreements determine how much water each gets, when cuts are triggered, and the order in which the parties have to sacrifice some of their supply. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has tested positive for COVID-19. That's according to his office today. Abbott, a Republican, is fully vaccinated against the virus. And his office said in a statement that he is tested daily. And this was his first positive result. The statement says Abbott is currently isolated in the governor's mansion and receiving Regeneron's monoclonal antibody treatment. Texas is one of several states passing legislation preventing schools and localities from mandating face masks and vaccinations to fight COVID. And Chris Cuomo told CNN viewers last night that he wasn't an advisor to outgoing New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. He said, I'm a brother. Then Cuomo detailed the advice he gave him, including to resign. Before we wrap up tonight, there's one more thing I do want to say. My brother, as you know, resigned as governor of New York and will be stepping down next week. There are a lot of people feeling a lot of hurt and a lot of pain right now. And my hope is that ultimately everyone involved can get to a better place, that some higher good will be served in all of this. As for me, I've told you it's never easy being in this business and coming from a political family, especially now. This situation is unlike anything I could have imagined. Everyone knows you support your family. I know and appreciate that you get that. But you should also know I never covered my brother's troubles because I obviously have a conflict. And there are rules at CNN about that. I also said that a day would come when he would have to be held to account and I can't do that. I said point blank, I can't be objective when it comes to my family. So I never reported on the scandal. And when it happened, I tried to be there for my brother. I'm not an advisor, I'm a brother. I wasn't in control of anything, I was there to listen and offer my take. And my advice to my brother was simple and consistent. Own what you did, tell people what you'll do to be better, be contrite, and finally, accept that it doesn't matter what you intended. What matters is how your actions and words were perceived. And yes, while it was something I never imagined ever having to do, I did urge my brother to resign when the time came. I never attacked nor encouraged anyone to attack any woman who came forward. I never made calls to the press about my brother's situation. I never influenced or attempted to control CNN's coverage of my family. I tried to do the right thing, and I just want you all to know that. This will be my final word on it, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do so. And that's Chris Cuomo following a May report in The Washington Post that Cuomo had joined in calls about the scandal with a group of his brother's advisors. CNN called it inappropriate. And finally, a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia is expected to rule this week on whether a moratorium against evictions imposed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will stand. In late June, the high court refused by a 5-4 to four vote to allow eviction, the evictions to resume. But on Thursday, last Thursday, the court blocked part of New York's own moratorium on evictions put into effect because of the coronavirus pandemic. Now renters can no longer avoid eviction simply by submitting a hardship declaration. The 
CEO of Wynn is former city council speaker Christine Quinn. Uh, her organization, Wynn, operates 13 family shelters with 9,200 people and 5,000 children. She says Albany can change the law and preserve the moratorium if political leaders like soon-to-be new governor Kathy Hochul act. It is very confusing, and things do change rapidly as it relates to the eviction moratorium. The federal one lap. But then, thank goodness, the Centers for Disease Control found a a, a way that they could legally extend it. So that's great. The New York State one is still in existence, but the Supreme Court of the United States has struck down some of the most important parts of the New York State eviction moratorium. So unless the state... Uh, legislature or state government takes action quickly, those who are using the moratorium in New York will be left with very little protection. What exactly did the Supreme Court say was wrong with the eviction moratorium in New York? The Supreme Court basically said that the moratorium was kind of a taking of the property of the landlords, that the tenants and the landlords had entered into a contract, if you will, and that they were owed money. We believe there's a very easy legislative fix to that. There's actually legislation already drafted and existing in Albany, and if we were to just pass that, we believe we could, in a kind of surgical way, address the concerns of the Supreme Court and allow the moratorium to continue. And that's critically important because if this moratorium gets pulled out from under people, People don't have the resources, given the job loss during the pandemic, to pay all of that back rent. And their only option will be to end up in shelters. And that's the last thing the city needs and the last thing those renters need. Christine Quinn is CEO of WIN, an organization that runs shelters for homeless people. Housing rights activists say they are preparing in case of these evictions begin to help people fight against being removed from their homes. This is in New York and across the country, so we'll be seeing a lot more on this issue in the weeks and months to come. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.